Hey, and welcome to Talking MMG, where I continuously uh, uh, read from uh, literature by authors and by experts on uh, modern monetary theory. Uh, I am reading from The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, uh, obviously a best uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, and I'm on page 161 in the middle of uh, where the great social security mistake. We can learn a lot about the corrosive effects of the deficit myth by studying a history of social security. I myself, on a personal level, am on social security. Uh, social security is one of the federal government's greatest success stories. It lifts millions of people out of poverty every year and provides some measure of economic security for millions more. It helps the elderly and disabled. It's also the nation's largest child assistance program because it delivers such important benefits to so many. And it's not surprising that Social Security consistently enjoys high levels of support from the American people. So why is this popular and successful program under constant political attack? To answer that, we need to go back to 1935, the year it was born. Roosevelt had ambitious plans that went well beyond Social Security as we know it today. He saw his 1935 bill as the first part of a much broader system that would provide financial security for everyone in this country, protecting Americans from the cradle to the grave. When he signed the Social Security Act in 1935, Roosevelt called it a cornerstone in a structure which is being built but is by no means complete. The name itself, Social Security, gives us a clue to what Roosevelt had in mind. In his 1944 State of the Union Address, FDR defined his broader vision in terms of economic rights, including the right to what he called a useful and remunerative job, as well as the right to an adequate income a decent home, adequate medical care, and protection from economic hardships by, caused by old age, unemployment, accident, or other misfortunes. All of these rights, said Roosevelt, spelt security. Some of those expanded programs have come to pass since FDR first laid out his goals. The Social Security Act of 35 encouraged states to establish unemployment insurance programs. In 65, a broader vision for health care began to take shape with the passage of Medicare for the elderly and disabled and Medicaid for low-income people. Disabled people under 65 become eligible for Medicare in 73, further broadening its mandate. Roosevelt knew that Social Security would face ongoing opposition from some quarters. He was right. To this, to his opponents, FDR was a socialist, and Social Security was just another big government assault on freedom. But in trying to protect it for future generations, Roosevelt made a fundamental mistake. 
that mistake endangers the program and reinforces the deficit mess with consequences that go beyond Social Security. To reinforce the idea that Social Security was self-supporting, the Social Security Act of 35 tied the payment of benefits to a payroll tax that was meant to show how the program would be paid for. Working people would contribute a portion of their wages and collect benefits later. Most people believe and still believe that the payroll tax generates the revenue that is used to pay benefits. The first Social Security Trust Fund was created soon after. And money that was not indeed or not needed to pay benefits in any given year was invested in U.S. Treasuries and placed in the trust fund for safekeeping. This reinforced the belief that payroll taxes from working people rather than the federal government as a whole were supplying the cash. They kept Social Security afloat. Roosevelt had another reason for funding the program this way. He wanted people to see that they were paying into it so that they would feel entitled to the benefits they'd eventually receive. If you're working now, you're undoubtedly notice a payroll tax deduction that comes out of your paycheck each month, which shows up as a FIC or uh, FICA or Federal Insurance Contribution Act withholding. By making this contribution visible, the FTR reasoned each of us would develop such a strong sense, sense of entitlement that no damn politician can ever scrap my Social Security program. Roosevelt did something else that made the program more politically vulnerable. In the Social Security Act Amendment in 39, which established the, tr the trust fund, he also gave the program a board of trustees. The trustees are now expected to evaluate the program's fiscal solvency by projecting, uh, projecting program receipts and exp expenditures 75 years into the future. The only way to do that is, is by making a lot of assumptions about the various things that determine how much money we paid into Social Security and how much will be paid out in the years ahead. Among other things, the trustees have to answer questions like, how many people will be working in 75 years and in the years in between? How fast will the economy grow? And how much will wages increase? How long will people live on an average as we approach the 72nd century? 22nd century, excuse me, got the way wrong on that one. How many people will become disabled? What will happen to inflation rates? How many babies will be born? Now we can know for sure, of course. So the board's experts make the best predictions they can. And according to the 2019 to their 2019 report, their best guess is that the program's main trust fund will be exhausted, that is, that its balance will run down to zero by 2035. Workers will be will still be paying into Social Security, but the trustees expect that the amount of money being withdrawn from workers' paychecks will fall short of what will be required to pay full benefits. If, there were, if that were to happen, Federal law says the government must cut spending accordingly. That would force a 22% cent cut in benefits. FDR thought that his political foes would have a hard time attacking the program as long as everyone could see that the money to pay benefits were there was there. And therein lies the problem. 
Today, everyone can see that the money isn't there. The surplus withholdings that are credited to the trust funds will keep the system together for a while. Eventually, however, the fund accounts will be empty unless something changes, and this will trigger benefit cuts, not because the government can't afford the payments, but because Congress wrote a law that says it will not pay full benefits if the balances of the trust funds ever fall below zero. In an op-ed by Mark Goldwyn, a senior vice president of an organization called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, deploys some of the rhetoric commonly used against Social Security. First, Goldwyn claims that the program is facing a crisis and headed towards catastrophe. Why? Because he says, under current law, we cannot promise full benefits to even the average new retiree to say nothing about current or future workers. But Goldwyn fails to mention is that the Congress could change the current law with a single vote and the crisis would disappear forever. After all, it was Congress acting at FDR's behest that set up Social Security this way in the first place. As MMT shows, a currency-issuing government like the U.S. is never financially constrained as long as the payment obligations are denominated in its own unit of account. U.S. dollars, the federal government can always afford to support these programs. What it lacks is not the financial ability to pay, but the legal authority to pay. So why not just change the law, perhaps because the idea has never been seriously debated. Instead of challenging the funding structure itself, defenders of Social Security have mostly sided with FDR in thinking the best way to protect the program is to show that there are always, that there are always a ways to show up, or show up, excuse me, show up the trust funds so that the trustees can report that the program is fully funded over the 20 that's 75-year forecast horizon. Excuse me for that mistake. But if Social Security was considered fully funded over the next 70, 75 years, it would still be vulnerable to attacks from some critics. Economic uh, economist Lawrence Kozlikoff is notorious for urging lawmakers to use an even longer time horizon to evaluate the program's fiscal sustainability. How long? Cod Lykoff wants us to think as far as a hundred, I'm sorry, as a humanly possible and beyond by trying to predict how much money will be paid into and out of Social Security over the indefinite future. The whole exercise is truly ridiculous, but many lawmakers have taken him seriously. Inviting him to testify in the House and Senate committee uh, hearings, channeling his inner buzz light, uh, say lightweight, light ear, rather, uh, <laughs> Kodlikov tells members of Congress that Social Security's unfunded obligations, that is, it, that is, its future shortfalls over an infinite time horizon, add up to $43 trillion. Eventually, uh, I'm sorry, uh, evaluating, uh, evaluated this way, Social Security isn't just in trouble, it's bankrupt to infinity and beyond. Social Security's funding setup has led to benefit cuts before. In early 1980s, projected shortfalls led Congress to effectively cut benefits in several ways. It delayed the annual effective date of cost of living increases, which slightly lowered overall benefits and taxed benefits for high-income recipients. 
Most importantly, the retirement age was gradually raised from 65 to, 60, to 67. People don't just work longer when the retirement age is raised. Their benefits are cut, too, because they receive less over the course of their retirement. Those who retire early, often because they're no longer uh, able to work, receive less because the benefit formula reflects lower total payouts. In fact, by raising the retirement age by just two years, Congress imposed a 30% reduction in total benefits for people retiring earlier than 65. The adjustment also affects people who started collecting benefits after the official retirement age. But Social Security's funding structure doesn't just leave it open to attack from conservative Republicans. It has led by Democrats to propose cuts and cutting one of their party's signature programs. Some reports, some reports say that Bill Clinton tried to broker a compromise deal in '97 with then House Speaker Gingrich to cut Social Security and Medicare, but the impeachment inquiry prevented it from going forward. When he ran for president in, 20, in 2000, Al Gore er, used the idea of lockbox to talk about how he would protect Social Security from future cuts. At the time, the federal budget was in surplus. In other words, nobody was being paid. And Gary believed, and Gary, <laughs> Gore believed that government should lock those surplus dollars up in the trust fund so that Social Security would be in a better financial health. He repeated the idea over and over like a mantra during the, the first debate of 2000 presidential election with George W. Bush. The lockbox metaphor, however, well-intentioned, was another example of misguided economic thinking. That thinking was rooted in the idea that Uncle Sam only has a limited amount of dollars to work with and that locking some of them in a trust fund would somehow make it easier for the government to afford to pay benefits in the future. Gore's lockbox metaphor backfired politically. George W. Bush mocked the use of the phrase, telling voters that Social Security's trust funds were nothing more than a cabinet full of IOUs. A Ponzi scheme, really. As President Bush outlined a proposal to begin privatizing Social Security, fortunately, he was not successful. Gore's heart was in the right place, but imagine how much better it would have been if he had simply said, Social Security is safe. No major changes are necessary. The federal government can keep every promise it has made because it can never run out of money. Unfortunately, no politician has yet offered those kinds of assurances to the, to the American people. In 2013, President Obama proposed a, a benefit cut of his own using something called the chained CPI as a fancy term for a simple idea. Increase Social Security benefits more slowly than inflation so that their actual value gets smaller over time, as the Center for Economic and Policy Research explains, for the average worker uh, retiring at the age of 65, this, mean, this would mean a cut of about $650 uh, each year by 75, and a cut of, of roughly 1130 each year after 85. The chained uh, CPI would cut benefits for the oldest retirees who tend to be the poorest retirees by 10%, or by nearly 10%, rather. A, um, a fair approach would be to use something like the CPI-E. The E stands for elderly, which gives added weight to changes in costs for those 
for for things that make up greater percentages of living expenses for older people and the disabled, including Medicare, medical care, and transportation. Indexing to CPIE would help struggling seniors by increasing benefits rather than cutting them. People have also proposed raising the retirement age again, as well as, as was done in the 1980s, this time to age 70 or even higher. For every year the retirement age has increased, benefits are cut by 67%. Raising the retirement age also worsens inequality. Sometimes lawmakers make the case for means testing, Social Security reducing or eliminating benefits for people with higher incomes. At first glance, this may seem reasonable. Why should the government pay Social Security benefits to people like Bill Gates or, or Oprah Winfrey? These folks are set for life. There are two answers. First, FDR established Social Security as a universal program. That decision helped sustain broader public support for the program over nearly a century. Means testing would undermine support by, by turning it into a welfare program that provides benefits only to a subset of the population deemed needy. Uh, pu uh, public assistance. The other problem is the means testing, like so many other changes, and change at CPI increasing retirement age and so on, uh, conflates an accounting problem with a financing problem. Finding ways to leave uh, to leave more money or leave more dollars trapped on an accounting ledger for a longer number of years will extend the program's legal authority to pay out benefits, but it does nothing to enhance the government's financial ability to pay. It's an undue burden imposed by a previous by a previous Congress, which had which has made Social Security a part and parts of Medicare vulnerable to attacks for decades. One way to see how the trust fund approach leads to confusion over program sustainability is by comparing the treatment of Social Security's trust funds, there are two of them, with the trust fund that has been established for Medicare, there are also two every year. The Social Security and Medicare boards of trustees each publish an annual report that examines the current and projected financial status of Social Security's trust funds. Old age and survivor's insurance are OC or some of that, uh, and disabled insurance DI. And Medicare's trust funds, supplemental medical insurance or SMI, and, and hospital insurance uh, high. For years, a summary of the reports has concluded both Social Security and Medicare face long term financial shortfalls under currently, uh, currently scheduled benefits and financing. Specifically, the uh, OASI, DI, and IHI trust funds are all considered to be in crisis. According to the 2019 report, the uh, OEC, I guess you pronounce it, trust fund will be exhausted in 2034. DI will run out of money in 2052, and the HI fund will be depleted by 2026. So five years. Um, unless something changes, these programs will cease to be authorized by authorized to pay full benefits. But there's one trust that one that isn't in trouble: uh, Medicare Part B and D, or SMI. Uh, why is this one been healthy? One why is why is this one healthy while the others are projected to run out of money? 
Answer is simple. SMI has the legal authority to pay full benefits if the trust fund are, are ever exhausted and the others don't. For SMI, the trustees project, project that both Part B and Part D will remain adequately financed until the indefinite future because current law provides financing that, that keeps SMI financially secure to, to infinity and beyond. It's that simple. Social Security's program and Medicare's hospital insurance are considered fiscally unsustainable because the government isn't committed to making payments. While Medicare Part B and D get a clean bill of health because Congress has granted the legal authority to make the payments no matter what else happens. Congress could in fact change the current law so that the same language applies to the other programs that it hasn't done so is a political choice, not an economic choice. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know that by reading most newspapers, however, or by listening to most pundits, all we hear is that Social Security is going broke. The near consistent, sorry, the near constant fear mongering is taking a toll on younger people. I teach university classes. Each year, I, I ask my students how many of them think they'll be able to collect Social Security when they retire. And each year, fewer hands go up. That's consistent with the survey by the, the Trans America Institute, which found that 8% of millennial workers uh, born from 81 to 96 say the worry of Social Security won't be there for them. That's terribly sad because there's absolutely no reason that Social Security can't be there for future generations. What's even more unfortunate is that these attacks on Social Security are taking place just as the nation faces a growing retirement crisis, one that makes Social Security more important than ever. People use uh, people used to talk about retirement as a three-legged tool. The three legs were supposed to be a pension from your job, personal savings, and social security benefits. Unfortunately, for millions of Americans, two out of the three legs have been sawed off. Savings have been hurt by wage stagnation for working Americans, and employers are cutting back on reliable pensions. The Washington Post told the told the story told, told the story of workers at a McDonnell Douglas plant in Tulsa who lost their jobs and their pensions when the company closed the plant down. That wasn't an accident. When the workers sued, court documents show that McDonnell uh, Douglas chose to close the Tulsa plant because many employees were approaching retirement age when they could have collected full pension. By closing the plant, the company was able to pay them only a fraction of their full pensions. The employees won their lawsuit, but the award was averaged at 30000 amount to much less than the value of their pensions. The result, instead of enjoying retirement after a lifetime of work, many were forced to keep working to the end to make, to make ends meet. One ex-employee, a 79-year-old man, went to work as a, as a greeter at Walmart, standing on his feet eight hours a day. Another worker, another worked a midnight shift, loading trucks at the age of 73. A 74-year-old took a job as a crossing guard, and a 70-year-old started buying and selling junk to earn extra cash for his survival. While their situations are extreme, these employees are not alone. Corporations around the country have cut costs by reducing pension benefits. That's one of the reasons so many older Americans are in trouble. 
One study concluded that 40% of middle-class Americans will experience downward mobility in retirement. Falling out of the middle class and 8.5 million people in danger of falling into poverty or near poverty. For many of these retirees, Social Security is the only thing keeping them from becoming impoverished. Employers have cut back dramatically on defined benefit pension plans that guarantee a fixed payment every month after retirement. Instead, many employers now offer defined contribution plans like 401ks that create special savings accounts for retirement. In 75, 9 out of 10 workers in private companies had a defined benefit pension plan. These pensions were often the result of labor negotiations. Before unions lost bargaining power by 2005, that, that number had dropped to one in three. While there's better than no retirement plan at all, the money in 401k plan has to last throughout a person's retirement. These plans barely provide the level of monthly income retirees might expect from the defined benefit plans. The shift has hurt lower income workers as a report from the Economic Policy Institute, or EPI, explains higher income workers with their greatest capacity to make contributions are more likely to participate in defined or contribution plans. The same report also finds that the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution plan has exacerbated racial and ethnic disparities, has posed particular challenges for single people and women, and has widened the gap between workers who have college degrees and those who don't. Millions of other workers, um, uh, working Americans, have no employer retirement program at all. As the, a as the EPI report concludes, many for many groups, lower-income Black, Hispanic, non-government-educated, or non-college-educated, rather, and unmarried Americans, the typical working-class family or individual, has no savings at all in retirement accounts, and for those that do savings, the medium balance in retirement accounts, accounts are very low. Emphasizes in the original, the retirement crisis is linked to the broader crisis of wage stagnation, along with the rising costs of education, health care, and other basic needs. In this light, retirement's three-legged tool looks more like a more looks more like a more like a pile of useless sticks looks more and more okay i'm sorry it looks more and more like a pile of useless sticks today's workers aren't the only ones who would suffer from social security cuts currently social security lifts 15 million older americans and 1 million children out of poverty many of them remain close to the poverty line the average retirement benefit was 1409 dollars per one per month in 2018, and women typically received about 20% less than that. A federal, uh, the federal, uh, a federal poverty level for individuals that year was 12,140 per year. We should be looking for ways to increase benefits under these circumstances, not cut them. The program will not run out of money if we do. The wait, the, the program will not run out of money if we do. The constraints around Social Security are political, not economical. Or economic in nature. I'm gonna stop right there. Uh, for tomorrow, the chapter, well, the part of the chapter is called "The Entitlements Are Also in Danger." Uh, on page 170 and 171, pretty much at the end of the page. Uh, so let's see. Thank you for listening. 
if you want news or my brand of news, you can go to YouTube and look up my channel, uh, Green Party and Socialist News Channel. Uh, you can also listen to me in about, say, another hour or so, and I will be doing financial, uh, talking financially. Uh, and also, if you like what I've done so far, please become a 9 cent a month subscriber uh, or become a free subscriber by going to my on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can also donate at paypal.me slash capital leftist, capital GAP network, or you can look me up at Teespring for merch at uh, Green Party and Socialist News, or you can look up Conversation with a Socialist. Uh, I have everything between like pants and shirts and cups. Oh my. Anyway, uh, go, to, go to those uh, three or four URLs and uh, purchase whatever your heart desires for the part goes. I thank you for listening and look forward to talking to you some more uh, and tomorrow news and other things. Uh, this weekend, I will be putting up my uh, YouTube channel, a two-hour and one-minute um, meetup with uh, people who talk about uh, MMT, um, if it's a scam or not, that sort of thing. Uh, that was great fun for me because I was actually able to show a little bit of my uh, knowledge or lack thereof. And uh, thanks for watching. In this case, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you then. Peace out for now. Wear those masks.